This is The Stateless Man for the pursuit of individual liberty beyond arbitrary borders, oppressive governments, and myths of national obligations. If you value liberty and are willing to migrate and vote with your feet, you've come to the right place. This is The Stateless Man, and we are back pursuing liberty beyond borders. That is international living, financial independence, and personal sovereignty. Uh, the show is sponsored by AMTG Solutions for your digital media and web development needs. Check them out at amtgs.com. They do great work, and that includes the statelessman.com website today. We're broadcasting from beautiful Boca Raton, Florida, and I'm glad to have Elena Ball back on the show. Welcome back. Hi. Glad to be here. Ryan, and we have, mate, just... Another great lineup of guests today and topics to discuss. A lot has been going on, including many of you may know the uh, election of a certain man in Venezuela. We're not going to talk too much about that one. It's not a, a great topic, but um, yeah. but it is making the news. And Elena did write a great article on Venezuela maybe a month ago now. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I think it was almost a month ago now. Right. You can check it out on the setlist, man. I'll post it on the Facebook page right now. So. If you want to follow updates on the show that as we as we proceed along the topics, uh, go to the Facebook page, just The Stateless Man on Facebook. Any new listeners or just overseas radio network listeners who haven't been familiar with the page, if you're not on the Facebook page, you can also get to the email update. Now, that is on the right on thestatelessman.com, and each week that gives you an update as to what well, it gives it. It leads with a feature article, an article that, that I think is important to the listeners and also a preview of the show along with a link through to the last week's, last week's podcast overview. And so this week we do have a great range of topics and I titled the show Big Brother China Lifelong Learning with the Mobile Writer Withhold Support for the Cuban Regime question mark. Now, Big Brother China, this one came to my attention, I think a couple of weeks ago, there was an article in The Economist, an excellent, an excellent article just about how the fact that earlier predictions that the internet would unravel, you could say totalitarianism or tyranny in China, have not really come true. That basically, China still is totalitarian in many regards, and rather than, you could say, the internet undoing that what it has done is, you could say, stimulated those in power in China to build a much more sophisticated censorship apparatus. And a bit like the Ministry of Truth in 1994, that's why I noted Big Brother China. And that actually, 1994 was one of the leading books to have influenced me in, in the article I put out last week. If you haven't seen that one, that's also at thestatelessman.com. The article, which it, from The Economist, is, is titled A Giant Cage, as in a cage of information. And it really is bizarre because it describes how in China, many sites like Facebook are not in use, but they have their own kind of versions, like censored versions of Facebook or Twitter or whatever it may yeah. be, which are highly controlled. And I think these restrictions are hard to comply with. That's why, it was, did the article say that even Google left China? Yes, Google left China as well. Amazing. So even Google, I know, was they were trying to comply, but even they could not live up to their requirements. Now, I have a good friend who grew up in China, and oh, he was an intern who worked alongside me at the John Locke Foundation when I was there in Raleigh, North Carolina. His name is Milton Mai, and he is a PhD candidate at North Carolina State University, and we have him on the line. So 
I'm really pleased to introduce Milton Mai. Welcome to The Stateless Man. Hey, Fergus. Thank you for having me. Right on. So let's just uh, digest this article. Like I said, as the springboard to the topic, is there anything you want to point out that you think was misleading or incorrect in this article, A Giant Cage from The Economist? I think the article states the um, the matter fairly uh, good, um, correctly, I would say. Um, one thing you have to understand, China, is that just imagine uh, China politically is still an old kingdom. I'm not sure if you guys have watched the Game of Thrones. So if you are a big fan of Game of Thrones, you know how important a war is for an old kingdom, right? It prevents all the weird things from, from the north. So slow down. How important a war is? What do you mean? Yeah, how important a war is for an old kingdom. The war, like you build a war uh, uh, against. You mean, you, you mean a war as in fighting, yeah. or a wall as in the wall of China? The wall of China. The I, of China. Yeah. Okay, okay. Got you, mate. Yeah. So yeah. why is it so important? Because it prevents all the weird things from the north. Uh, from uh, I mean, in the case of China, it prevents all the things from from overseas, from from America and Europe that the the leadership of of China don't want to see. So mm. basically, they, they don't want these invaders. They don't trust foreigners. They don't trust foreign-run companies. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you think the article is is basically accurate and it's describing yes. you say a need for an old kingdom. How yes. do you think? Yeah. How, I mean, I'm. I think I've watched part of a, an episode of Game of what is it? Game of Thrones. Yeah. What? But what exactly? Do you want to expand the analogy? What exa- How how does China epitomize or demonstrate itself as an old kingdom? Because um, politically, China is still a, a dictatorship. So um, there's no freedom, no individual liberty, no rule of law in China. And the way the government governs is still used um, the way that Soviet Union and the former socialist countries use. But if you look at the their economy, it's a pretty kind of a free market. But not, oh, really? not as free, yeah, not as free as Hong Kong or or United States. But I mean, but because China has been through a really unfree stage to a really mm. relatively free stage, so you can see the this kind of a boom, the the booming in the economy. So it's it's kind of strange to see that on one hand. China has the Chinese government still has strong grip on the internet, while still weeping the benefit of economic boom. So mm. part of this boom is from the the use of the internet because more and more people are engaging in using the internet every day. Why now it's estimated uh, more than five hundred million people in China um, are using internet. So the Chinese government doesn't want to lose this benefit from the business of of, of internet. Right. So you so you're saying the Chinese government they they want to you could say profit from the taxes and the growth that foreign engagement allows, but at the same time they are clamping down on all personal expression or anything that would be a threat to their monopoly on power. And this reminds me a little bit of Singapore actually, where they have huge economic freedom but do not do so well on social freedoms. Now, that yeah, we have Milton Mai. He is a North, graduate student at North Carolina State University and a former employee at the John Locke Foundation of Classical Liberal Policy Research Institute in North Carolina. 
If you want to call in, it's one eight 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 seven four one seven four seven two with a question. Otherwise, stay with us. This is the Stateless Man on Overseas Radio Network. Your website is a major doorway to reach new clients. A dynamic web presence will generate you more leads and business. AMTG Solutions offers premium web design and digital media services for today's small businesses and entrepreneurs. Visit our website at amtgs.com or email Tony at info at amtgs.com and let's get the ball rolling. Hello, this is The Stateless Men. On the Overseas Radio Network and we are pursuing liberty beyond borders and that was a little bit of an ironic lead-in from the Great Wall of China to what was the, what was the end of that line? I've forgotten it. I should know it. We've heard, I've heard that one so many times. Yeah, so we, we are discussing the Great Wall of China to some degree, and the, the article we're examining relates to China's internet censorship and what they describe as a giant cage. And I have on Milton Mai, who is a graduate student in North Carolina, and from, um, how does, Milton, how do I, how does one pronounce the city that you're from originally? Oh, uh, Guangzhou. It's a, a southern city. The most liberal city in China uh, is uh, close to Hong Kong. All right. So the the yeah. influence from Hong Kong has come across the water. Right. And Fergus, I, w- I also want to point out that uh, there's something the article uh, didn't say about China. Um, sure. Because, because right now, um, like e-commerce is a very big business in China. So if you need, need to do business through uh, internet, you have to use internet, right? So this booming of um, e-commerce, commerce, yeah. kind of forces the companies in China and and the government to become a, a union, an airline, to utilize the, the the filter and this censorship to exploit the, the internet yeah, as, I know. as much as possible. So yeah, yeah there has been a force. Um, it's kind of a motivation between the government and the company to get together. So. If the, the government provides internet censorship, but at the same time, the company the companies have a demand for the government to censor, so that to protect to protect the they the market. Protect no, them I, from yeah, to I know what, the market. Yeah, I know what you're getting at. Basically, you're just saying that many of these foreign companies that don't necessarily want to censor just to basically get along and make money in China, they'll they will work with the Chinese government in assisting that censorship. And beyond, and we actually noted, I'm not sure when, maybe a couple of weeks ago, how this censorship is going on in Australia too, where Twitter, I just, I still cannot believe this, but Twitter is assisting the Australian government in censoring tweets. I mean, tweets isn't even a serious word, but I mean, you know, you know what I'm getting at. And so yes. in, in China, what is weird about this, and this is what the article touches upon too, that there are now companies specializing in this online censorship servicing you might call it and other nations are looking to hire these companies to get the same services that the Chinese government is getting yes right because the the governments both in the central government and the local governments have invested heavily on this sophisticated and very high tech advanced technology to uh, of filtering and censoring messages for example uh, we have uh, equivalent Twitter it's called Sinan Weibo. It's, it's a micro blog. So if you post a post on, on that Chinese version, Twitter, 
Right. And the technology makes you yourself, miss, uh, the technology makes that post visible to you, but invisible to other people. So you think, oh, you can, you can still see all your posts there. But, but no one else is other people, it. other people are not able to see your posts. <laughs> so this is a really tricky and creepy technology that ever been, um, yeah. disappointed. I mean, Milton, I'm really glad that you've come on the show to speak openly because is there intimidation when it comes to expats like you? Uh, I don't think there's um, intimidation because, um, but some friends warn me not to not to be so outspoken. But uh, you know, but I'm not afraid of that because why right now? Not many people like. I don't think the government would pay attention to this show, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. I'm not really, I'm not sure about that. I'm, I'm just concerned that I know that some people don't want to speak up for fear that there will be consequences, and that is just crushing to freedom of speech. It's, it's a, right. it's a, it's a, a censorship that is really, I think, it, it demeans our. You could say, just, I mean, I don't know about you, Milton. I, mean, I guess, you, I guess, we we agree on this this point that. I just so greatly appreciate the freedom to be, just speak my mind, and I don't want to sacrifice that to anybody. No problem. Yeah, I'm I'm not afraid of any persecution, but I just want to speak out the uh, the truth. And, and uh, oh, go ahead. In in Venezuela, we had we had a technique where we for tweets people used um, sort of encrypted messages, code words, code words, and also encrypted email uh, services. Really? Is there? Is there such a thing going on in China? Yeah, how are people resisting this? I'm sorry? How are people resisting the censorship? Have they got little techniques going on, such as encrypted or code code words? Oh, it's been uh, it's funny because it's been uh, like a cat and mouse uh, game between the authorities and uh, and the people who use internet all the time. So on the other hand, those people who graduate from um, great university developed. A, anti-filter technology to to penetrate the great firewall to go outside or to go outside the internet and to see Facebook to, to lock in Twitter so for this for this very educated people they can get around the system to mm. go to other to, to other websites that have been brought by the by the Chinese government does it does that mean though that this cage that the Chinese government has is going to come to an end anytime soon? I don't think it has, um, it will come to an end very soon. But as the article in The Economist says that it will delay the reform or any revolution. But my point is that the censorship cannot be maintained for so long because I have noticed a very interesting thing. I am yes. very positive for the micro block in China right now because, because when you, when you complain a lot, so, uh, online, but you, you, you can't go on strike. You can take to the street to protest. That's illegal in China. But mm. at least there's a venue for, for people to complain all these, um, ill opinions online. So this microblog brings people very open-minded world. So they can see w- what's going on in America. In 10 years yeah. ago, people, people were not able to see what's going on in America, in Europe. So why now with the blessing of internet? I mean, I would say a limited internet. People can see what's going on in America, how Congress works, how like how the president. I mean, how, you mean so, how he, how an elected government can break its own laws too? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, 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 like 
I, I mean, yeah. in the sense that people can compare the two different sure. systems between the United States and China. That's right. what most people like to do. So the more people see these things happen, they will yeah. see, okay, America is great. So they will send their kids to America to study. So more and more people go into America, they know the system, how this system works, and they bring back this, this sense of a, a citizen or a, a, a civil society. So right. I, I believe this will bring changes in the future, we, but slowly. Right, we've only got a little bit of time to play with it, and I want to just use one example now. I posted a video about the Tiananmen Square massacre in China, and do you want to just note how many people actually are aware of the Tiananmen Square massacre that occurred, I think, 24 years ago now? I think that that's a, that's a probability, but I don't think that probability is as higher as, as possible as 24 years ago, because right now the, the new leadership have been aware of this kind of matter, so that's why uh, the, the government... So you just, you're, you're just saying that, that, that that kind of event would be shut down again? Or people would be allowed to protest? Not allowed to be protest. I think that there's still a possibility that sure. the same thing would happen, but, but, but less but, likely. Yeah, but the point I was making too, though, is that the people in China are not even aware of the Tiananmen Square massacre, correct? Yeah. No, they're, they're, they're completely not aware because this event has been brought from the history books, textbooks from all media at the same time. So if you want to know something about the Tiananmen Square, you have to go to Hong Kong or Taiwan or the United States, not in China. Wow. So I think that's just amazing. Yeah, such an important event in Chinese history, but it, it, it revealed, let's say, the, the non-altruistic approaches of the <laughs> people in power. Well, we're, we're totally in, uh, Milton, so thanks again for coming on, and I've posted the note to the Facebook page at The Stateless Man. So uh, thanks again, Milton, okay? Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Right on. Uh, stay with us, folks. This is The Stateless Man on the Overseas Radio Network. This is The Stateless Man, Pursuing Liberty Beyond Borders, broadcasting live from Boca Raton, Florida, uh, with Elena Ball here. And we just finished up chatting with Milton Lai about the, you could say, the Great Wall of Censorship uh, in China and what that means. And Elena had a question. You don't want to chat about it in terms of what was the term you used to describe when basically private companies get in the business of censorship but basically profit from that industry? Yeah, clientelism. Clientelism? Yeah, the state sort of uh, generates a lot of dependence, and it just—it also, apart from creating monopolies, um, it, it it makes it harder to what? for the regime to fall because these people are are making money from it. Yeah, I know you have vested interests. Exactly. It's like it's why in the U.S. we have this farm bill every year, it seems, to discuss who's going to get these subsidies, which amount to billions of dollars. I think about eighty billion a year. And you think, why are we giving subsidies to beetroot farmers, you know, or to people who grow corn? You know, don't, don't we already grow enough of that stuff in the United States? And this, ironically, if you come to the U.S., you'll know that here, tomato ketchup and sodas, they don't use sugar. They use corn syrup, which is just ridiculous, really, right. and it t- doesn't taste as good either. <laughs> and probably one reason why Americans, sometimes, well, people here are sometimes unhealthy, but it's just interesting that, Sugar would, now people use, naturally use sugar, but because the U.S. government subsidizes corn and it also has tariffs against sugar imports, naturally corn syrup becomes the you know, item of choice. And I think, like you said, that, that that is one of the concerns that 
once you build a kind of apparatus of beneficiaries right. of censorship or whatever it may be of interventionism, they are going to lobby against the removal of that. Exactly. Uh, not because of any, of any idealism, just because they are beneficiaries. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, I, I want to be optimistic, though. And, and like Milton was saying, just the spread of ideas, I guess that is what the Chinese government is, people in Chinese government are so afraid of. The idea. I mean, he mentioned, I, I wanted to mention the Tiananmen Square massacre because this was just such an important, an important incident in Chinese history where basically a bunch of students were protesting for democracy or for, for the right to vote. And the Chinese government sent in tanks. And the number of people who died is disputed because, again, it's such a controlled event in terms of the information about it. But at minimum, 400 students died and could be thousands, which is just insane. And there was one bizarre video, which I shared on the Sexman page, where the tanks were on their way to the event. And there was a guy who stood in front of the tanks and was like trying to stop them. And they didn't want to run the guy over, I guess, because that would have alerted everybody that we're here to kill people. Right. And, but, but they, um, in the end, someone pushed them out of the way and the tanks kept on going. But it was just an amazing act of courage and really incredible. He even got up on the tank and started talking to the guys, you know, telling me like, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. Wow. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, next, next up though, we have a man who goes by the name, the mobile writer. I've just been really glad to have him actually engaging with the Stateless Man Facebook page and website and, I think he's a bit of a man of, of after my own thinking. I'm, I really like his work. And one article that I uh, came across recently was about being a lifelong learner. And the, the headline was, I'm a lifelong learner. Are you? And I think that's a great, uh, you know, it was a great starting topic, starting point for a discussion because we at the Sailor's Man, we want to self-educate. We don't want to rely on other people to educate us. And that means basically taking the initiative and making education a priority in your life. And his, so this man's name is Jeff Johns, Jeff Johnston, and he's originally from Ontario, Canada. Uh, I'm trying to remember now, maybe Brantford. I can't remember the, the particular part. And he now lives down in Cuenca or bases himself down in Cuenca, Ecuador. I think it's been about six years down there. And he writes, it, it is the mobilewriter.com. And he writes a variety of articles on about, you could say, being a writer and a traveling writer at the same time. That's his niche market. And so, Jeff, I'm really pleased you could make it on to the stateless man. Uh, have we got you there, Jeff? We're going to have to uh, check up on that after the break. I'm not sure what is happening with the audio there, but I'll just explain the article uh, while we get him reconnected. Basically, it's a discussion of how he considers himself both a generalist and a lifelong learner, someone who continues studying beyond formal education, which, of course, is, seems logical to many of us, but... I think one of the unfortunate aspects of this formal education is that people assume that for the first maybe 13 or how many of the years of your, of your sort of educational life, that is when you're learning and then you're just working from then on. But of course, that's not the case and you don't have to abide by that approach. And I also think he's great that he um, mentions uh, yeah? a generalist versus a specialist. Why did that one catch your attention? Well, because um, I think today a lot of people are focused on becoming specialists in a certain subject, uh, whatever that may be. Um, but and and Jeff is saying that actually, the generalist uh, being a generalist, knowing, be at least being aware of yeah. other subjects in today's world would be helpful. It would be helpful. It's a trade-off, and he mo- he mentions that these days there are just so many different new fields of inquiry that 
you have a hard time being a generalist on everything or being sort of like a well-schooled person in, in all areas. I can hear Jeff coming through. I heard a little bit of kind of scratchiness, so I'm hoping we don't get too much background noise. But, yeah, so just, Jeff, just try and be easy on your um, – just don't brush around. Like, I, I just hear that a little bit. But I will say thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you. So why don't we just actually begin the conversation with how you decided upon this niche topic of the mobile writer. Well, I'm a, I'm a professional writer. I'm a technical writer. And I've um, been doing that for seven years, first in Canada and now here in Ecuador and you know, places in between. And I've always, well, since I left high school anyway, I've always enjoyed writing. I hated it in high school. Sure. And uh, it just kind of grew from there. And uh, this site, this site allows me to combine my love of writing and my interest in travel and mobility. We are, yeah, you're a man after my own heart in terms of that, that I never wanted to be a writer in high school, and I could never have imagined that that would become my profession. And I guess the same is the case with you, that, like you said, having the freedom to write about topics that actually interest you is just a whole different world from being told you will write about this and areas that have just of, of no interest. Now, your, yeah, your later, latest article is Becoming a Lifelong Learner. When did, where did you first hear about that concept, or do you remember what sort of brought that to your attention? Uh, I'd say it was probably at least 15 years ago, maybe 20. Um, just so everybody knows, I'm 57, so I'm not sure. your typical blog, you know, travel blogger or writer. Um, so it was, I would say, at least 15, probably 20, 25 years ago that I first heard that term. Right. And I've heard that one before, I guess from, you could say, people who question, for lack of a better term, the establishment form of education, that basically you want to be learning all the time. And not yeah. having such a, such a sharp distinction. Now, you you go on to say that yeah you you are learning all the time, and that people anyone who wants to be in a specialist profession will have to learn as well because that profession is always going to be updating, updated. But even you what you call your generalists uh, can benefit from this. So, what exactly is a generalist? I, I we, we might also we're generalists. But is that just people who are too lazy to actually specialize and focus on something? The way I look at it is specialists are useful. Um, you, know, you don't want to go to a general practitioner if you have uh, brain cancer or you know, an aneurysm. You want to go to somebody who specializes in neurosurgery. But you, know, you don't need to go to a neurosurgeon if you've got the flu or if you've got a broken toe. Right? Um, it depends on what the situation yeah, yeah. is. We're, Jeff, we're actually getting quite a bit of background noise. I'm not sure what that uh, moving around is. Just just hold it there. We're going to hold it. Go, go to the break in a second. So we're speaking with Jeff Johnston of The Mobile Writer, and uh, we're examining what it means to be a lifelong learner. This is The Stateless Man on the Overseas Radio Network. Welcome back to The Stateless Man, Pursuing Liberty Beyond Borders, and we're speaking with Jeff Johnston, who's down in Ecuador, and he is the mobile writer of themobilewriter.com. And we're just examining, yeah, his, one of his recent articles was on being a lifelong learner, what that means. You could say basically taking responsibility for your own education. And part of the article examines what you might say is the distinction between a specialist and a generalist, and it's not a 
clear-cut dichotomy because everyone has a little bit of knowledge of different things. Uh, it's just a good, like how much are you going to focus on one thing or another? Now, one of the bolded lines within this article is that there is a risk to going deeper and deeper into a specialization. I guess for many reasons, that risk, quote, that risk is a continual narrowing of view, a polarization of thought and vision. Do you know, Jeff, do you want to expand upon that point and clarify what you mean by this polarization of thought and vision, and perhaps with an example to help us understand? Yeah, if, you know, there's various ways of doing things, even inside a specialization, uh, different ways of doing heart surgery for the same disease or the same uh, physical problem, like a valve problem or something. And the more you specialize, the more you start to believe that yours is the only way or the only good way or the best way. And yet, obviously, it's not because there'll be another doctor who has a different way, and he'll believe the exact same thing about his method. So that's what I was talking about, about the polarization. You start to, um, you know, people are drifting apart, even though they're doing the same task or, well, aiming for the same result. They're going about it differently, and each have a belief about uh, which one is right or which one is best. And you were uh, you also mentioned uh, the Renaissance man uh, from history that he it was easier for them to, um, just to become generalists because there was much less there was much less to know topics to know from. Whereas today, yeah. um, being a generalist can also be being aware of different things, but not necessarily to the extent that these Renaissance Renaissance men knew. Yeah, uh, you know, I couldn't possibly know these days everything there is to know about math. Back in the Renaissance days, they pretty much did. You know, they knew everything that there was to know, everything that had been thought about was available to all these other learned men. Um, these days, it's impossible. You know, there's probably 50 or 60 specializations just in mathematics, uh, whereas uh, back then, Really, the only specialization would have been calculus. There was algebra, but I don't know that anybody called it anything special. The only useful one in terms of you know, construction or whatever was calculus. Uh, but these days, you have branches of math that, um, well, definitely boggle my mind. As much as I love math, I'm definitely not into the dozens of different types of mathematics. Right, actually, one of the polarization... Uh, tightening of one's thought and vision uh, reminds me of the field of economics, which is perhaps the one that I'm closest to or spend the most time following. And I am just still amazed by the way that people who've been studying in the field for decades basically have just opposite views. And mm -hmm. it really is astounding. I'm, I'm not surprised that many people are easily duped then by economists. And lots of politicians will just say things like, all economists believe this. I, every economist I know thinks this which is really brazenly dishonest, but it is true how people sort of enter you might, what, you, what you might call a school of thought within economics and then almost indoctrinate themselves within that realm, and it is unfortunate. I'm not sure why that happens so much, but it, it just appears to be the case. Now, yeah, you say you don't know everything there is to know and that the great, a greater value can be found in building critical thinking skills rather than just becoming knowledgeable, and you include a video of a guy called Ken Jennings, who was some kind of Jeopardy whiz, who basically said yeah, he that... Yeah, he, he was on the show for over a year. He won several million dollars. Right. So he was saying how the know-it-all is absolute, but I guess the critical thinker is not. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, um, it's impossible to know everything these days, but uh, anybody who cannot think critically won't survive long, or at least won't thrive for very long in this world. Uh, there's just too much going on. You know, things like Cyprus, where they just overnight shut down all the banks. You know, anybody, you could have seen it coming if you were following it, um, you know, and digging through everything. But, you know, the people in Cyprus woke up one morning and they didn't have access to their money for two weeks. Right. And what do you make of this point? So you, you kind of round off this, this article by saying that the world needs more lifelong learners. So what do you mean by the world needs more of these? One, one topic, one theme within this show is basically you could say not being ashamed to pursue your self-interest or your dreams in life as opposed to sacrificing yourself. But do you know, just clarify what you mean by yeah, the world needs more lifelong learners? Well, one of the things you just said about you know, following your passion, for some people their passion goes as far as watching TV every night. <laughs> uh, right? Sure. Yeah. That, that's how passionate they are about their life. They watch TV every night. Um, and I suppose that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. But um, there's so much more out there. Um, and if we're going to solve some of the problems that are in the world these days, we're not going to solve them by people sitting there watching TV. We're going to solve them with people going out and, you know, first noticing what's missing. And then uh, training, finding the information that will help them solve it, and then going out and telling other people about it. Gotcha. So, it, you know, if you're not interested in learning new things, and I know a lot of people who aren't, you know, I have family members who really aren't. Um, then, you know, that, that's not like that's bad. They're not bad people. That's just who they are. And I deal with them differently than I deal with people, other people in my family who are interested in learning all the time. Right. What's upcoming on the mobilewriter.com? Well, I never know because I get a lot of my ideas from Twitter and Facebook. Um, you know, right. Just the other day, you know, there was uh, all the attacks on WordPress sites. And I just finished writing about email privacy um, when I discovered that you know, a couple of days before, people had been posting about all these attacks. So, And that email or that post about email privacy, I'd actually said I was going to write the next day about computer prote protecting your computer and online information. And so it was all perfectly timed right there. So that was what I posted yesterday. But a lot of my posts are like that. I'm wondering what I'm going to write about, and there's something in Twitter or something in Facebook or something from somebody's blog that tweaks something. So, um, But my entire site is... is focused around people who who have the ability to write from wherever they want to write. Wherever, whether it's a, a sports writer who follows a baseball team, a fashion writer who you know, travels between New York and France and everywhere else, people traveling all around the world writing, you know, um, travel bloggers, any type of writer who's mobile, that's who, I'm, that's who my niche market is. Yeah, but how do I'm actually curious about that because it seems like that's a very there's a, you're going to have a hard time making a living doing that. I mean, I've I've written plenty, and I mean, I guess if you're living in Ecuador, it's easier because the cost of living is much lower. But blog posts, for example, I mean, you, you might, do you want to give us some wisdom behind how can a writer best make a living on the road? Well, it's not so much the making a living on the road part. For some, it is like travel bloggers; that's their job, but. Uh, other writers like me, I'm I'm 
I'm a technical writer. I have a job, but I can take my job wherever I want to go. If I want to go to the coast for a week, I just pick up when I go to the coast for a week. As long as I have internet and I have a cellular uh, modem, so I, I always have internet as long as there's cell service, um, in addition to wireless wherever I am. So I can go. And there are other people like that, you know, uh, screenwriters, novelists. They can go live someplace for three months at a time if they want. So it's about everybody like that. Now, for people who are trying to make a living on the road, yeah, it's more difficult. There are, you know, search engine op- optimization uh, careers, social marketing careers. It takes some time to get established in those careers. But once you do, you can take those with you wherever you go. The thing yeah, about the thing about mine is because right. I already have a job, I'm not I'm not looking to make you know a hundred thousand dollars a month with affiliate marketing or anything like that. I'm mostly I'm interested in writing. Um, it'll be nice to get paid for my efforts, yes. But I don't need to be making a whole whack load of money just to be able to travel because I can do that already. I just I just say that because I know there are people who make a living as a travel writer. But I know the competitiveness or the competition, getting yourself published and actually charging for your uh, your content. And yeah, there's, there's, there's much to be said about that. And I would encourage people to um, join a meetup group or, or basically f- form, basically learn the industry from others who've already made the, their way. And there is a, a group which I will post on the Stateless Man Facebook page as well. Uh, there's a, a, a meetup group that I participated in. There's a lot of uh, good information on that. If you're up in North Carolina in particular, that would be great. But there are many other like others like it around the world. And amazingly, when I well when I went there, first I learned things about you know how do you get health insurance without an employer? How do you handle your tax returns? How do you market yourself? Build your build your reputation, whatever it may be. So there is there is a realm there that that is you know for investigating and. Yeah, you know, if you want to go to the, the com, he's, ex- he's exploring this all the time. So uh, we, we are going to go to the, the news break soon. But, Jeff, thanks for coming on the show, and I look forward to being in touch uh, through The Stateless Man. Oh, thank you for having me here. I enjoyed talking with you. Right on, mate. Stay with us. This is The Stateless Man on Embassy's Radio Network. Welcome back to the second hour of The Stateless Man. We're pursuing liberty beyond borders. That's uh, international living, financial independence, and personal sovereignty. And I'm joined today by the lovely Elena Ball. Hi. A native of Venezuela and a fellow uh, international explorer and pro-liberty. Uh, yeah, explorer or researcher, writer. She's written on thestatelessman.com. And we have got the last hour to examine a topic of Great interest to many people here. We are broadcasting from Florida, and as we were just discussing during the break, Key West, the southernmost tip of Florida, is just 90 miles from Havana, or just Cuba in general, Havana. And given that I drove from North Carolina down here, that seems like not a very long way. (laughs) I drove that many times over over the last couple of days. Now... Many people, I think, just assume that you're not allowed to go to Miami from the United States. And if you go on Expedia.com, for example, you will have trouble trying to find flights to Cuba, but that doesn't mean there are not flights. So there, there are two ways to get there, basically. One, you can apply for some, if you're a United States citizen, otherwise, just go there. I mean, I would go there on a New Zealand uh, passport or some other passport. You can just go there directly if you're not a U.S. citizen, but still there are sanctions with the United States, which mean that 
if you want to go from the United States, you have to get some kind of special permit or license. Or if you just want to say, forget that, you can fly to Mexico or the Bahamas or anywhere else and just fly on to Cuba after that. And the Cuban uh, government does not stamp your passports, so there's no real worry about it. People do it all the time. If you are really one of those people who likes to obey laws, you can go with the permitting process, though. (laughs) (laughs) Do so at your own risk either way. Yeah, so just recently, though, this has become more of an issue because, I mean, I hate to use these crazy stage names, but Jay-Z and Beyonce went down there for a bit of a celebrity, celebrity vacation, and that created a bit of an uproar here in the U.S. I'm not sure whether people outside of the United States realize, but there still is a lot of, I don't know whether anger is the right word, but desire or frustration within Florida in particular from exiles from Cuba who are not exactly happy about what happened during the Cuban Revolution in 1959. And they have become relatively successful and influential in the United States. And the most prominent figure is probably Marco Rubio, a senator from Florida. And they, yeah, they, they have got a U.S. into a position where they don't want people traveling there because I guess the primary concern is that by traveling there you give important revenues to the Cuban government. Now, I've written about how draconian the Cuban government is. Uh, They are a totalitarian regime in basically all senses of the word. Now, but just more recently, a a journalist that I'm familiar with in Florida wrote a very good article which just outlined what the actual laws are, what the situation is in terms of trade and travel, and her name is Marianela Toledo. She's actually originally from Argentina, uh, not Cuba, but she has a, an interesting perspective to offer. And so I want to welcome her on to the show. Marianela, welcome to The Stateless Man. Thank you so much for inviting me to, to your program. I'm so right. glad we are talking about this. Yeah, definitely. And because, well, let me, let me go to your article. I, this is, it is a wonderful article. So I want people who, anyone who's interested in traveling to Cuba, check this one out, watchdog.org. And the title is Travel to Cuba is Tough, But It's Possible. And I'll be posting this on the Facebook page, Just the Stateless Man on Facebook. And one comment below the article really uh, intrigued me, or I just think is, is worth mentioning. This person who just goes by the name of Rai says, Just returned from a Cuba visit on a religious visa. So this person got the permit. The best hotels in Havana are filled with European and Asian visitors. The regime is indeed brutal, which we would agree with. The people suffer from deprivation because of trade bans, especially in rural areas. The sanctions prevent U.S. citizens from sending goods and dollars to individual citizens, churches, and human rights groups there and should be lifted. Hopefully, the younger Cuban population in the U.S. will stop the unreasonable revenge agenda of the elder generation of Cuban expatriates. Now, do you think that commentary on your article is touching upon an important point? Do you think it is just vengeance or that people actually really care about bringing a freer Cuba? I mean, uh, as I said, the article, uh, travel to Cuba is so easy. And people trying to do everything to travel there. Right. Um, one of the things they do is they just enroll or get a friend in religious activities and they go there through that. Or as you mentioned before, they travel to Mexico or to Bahamas and go, go there through, through Cuba. So by the end, I think uh, all, the, all the exiles in Miami, especially, yes. are uh, fearing because uh, they they think that the people don't realize this is uh, 
dictatorship. Thank you. Um, like uh, all others, like Pinochet or Franco. Sure. And um, that's why they are concerned from people uh, traveling to Cuba. But we all realize that it is a dictatorship and a, a terrible one, really brutal one. So does that mean we should just not travel there, or maybe we want to travel there to, you know, help help the people there or interact with them, share what's going on outside of Cuba? I mean, that is a really good point. Uh, I think that Cubans in the exile didn't do uh, so much to promote what is really happening there, and that's why many people is uh, really uh, have this desire to travel to Cuba. So um, by the end, uh, I think as a uh, you can say probably people want to travel to help them like they do in uh, in other poor countries like Guatemala especially or mm. Peru. But uh, it's not the same thing because they have sanctions. And talking about sanctions, uh, other important things to realize is Iran, Syria, and Sudan are also called by U.S. government as sympathetic with or sympathetic supporter of terrorism, but right. they don't have the same sanctions to travel. So, the, yeah, so there are sanctions just on Cuba because there is, you could say, a, a strong Cuban demographic in the United States that has much more political clout, and they really don't like interaction with Cuba because they, they really are concerned about revenues for the, the government there. Uh, we are speaking with Marianela Toledo of Florida Watchdog, examining uh, her latest article, Travel to Cuba is Tough, but it's possible, and I'm going to be posting that. So uh, this is The Stateless Man on the Overseas Radio Network. This is The Stateless Man on the Overseas Radio Network, and we're speaking with Marianela Toledo about travel to Cuba from the United States, uh, which, and there are some laws impeding that. Uh, one needs a, either a permit or to basically go around it by traveling to another country first. And we're just discussing about what, you know, the motivations for that law, uh, whether it's just simply revenge or whether it, it may be legitimately to starve the Cuban government of funding, although that's been going on for more than 50 years, and it doesn't seem to have worked a heck of you know, a lot of good. But we spoke earlier about this, Marianella, and you said you're concerned that people use this as a political football, and you could say use it to, to promote themselves within the, Flor- you know, within the community here in Florida. Do you want to expand upon that point, if I've sort of touched on you know, accurately what you mentioned over the phone? Yes, that's true. I think that some politicians, especially in Florida, when we have uh, Eliana Ross Lettinen and Mario Diaz Valar, two Cuban right. Americans, very influential politicians, um, they send a request to the Department of Treasury in Washington asking mm. why Jay uh, Z and Beyonce traveled to Cuba. But uh, all of this of this situation come out and really um, make me wondering uh, why the same question or the same effort they are putting against uh, for the people traveling to Cuba are not putting against Iran, Syria, and Sudan, which are also, as I say before, a sympathetic supporter of terrorism from the right. U.S. Um, government. 
And um, in these uh, kind of situations where I uh, really touch the exile feeling from the people um, here in Florida, people trying, uh, other, other people listening what they are, they are saying, uh, maybe think, well, they are doing a lot of effort to um, deny the visit to Cuba because uh, they promote uh, the Cuba government. But uh, by the end, they took this event uh, for the political advantage. Uh, mm. I think uh, Eliana Rosletinen has been talking a lot about uh, Syria. Iran, I'm not saying she's not, but... Um, is uh, the feeling by the end is they use this as politics. And that's why uh, Jay-Z wrote a song about Cuba questioning that, because when you don't see the same laws passing against all the countries, maybe uh, that's why the question arises. Right. Um, but I, I'm also a little bit, I know that, Perhaps politicians here use that to enlarge their own images, but the the thing is, um, coming coming, I'm I'm from Venezuela, so it's a it's a similar vein to Cuba. Sure. Uh, although th- it hasn't gotten to the Not same quite extremes, but um, uh, I think the problem with with these communist governments is that they use their image. Their image is really important. So why, get, why is it so important to them? Because you manipulate media and information both inside and outside the country. So when you get people like Jay Z uh, and Beyonce visiting your country, mm-hmm. it, it it actually you can use it. The government inside Cuba uses it as well. well that, but have you investigated that? How does the Cuban government use this trip for its purposes? I mean, I don't really understand that. Yes, I mean, they, they used to promote because they, they say they want to come into this beautiful place. But, uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't remove the other thing we are talking about. Why do, do politicians don't push, uh, laws against Iran, Syria, and Sudan? Well, they do, they do, they, not, not against travel, they don't, but I mean, they do put negative laws against them. I think yeah, that, that, that is a good, that it, there is like an interesting point about why are we discriminating against Cuba when there are lots of other places that are, you know, have problems. One, my question is more about what you personally believe because we advocate freedom of movement that we don't want the government stopping you. But that, even if, even if you are allowed to, that doesn't mean it's a good idea. Let's say that, that there were absolutely no impediments to Cuba. Would you be concerned about people going there at all because that they would be supporting the regime? Or would you say that just personally you should avoid it? Do you follow my oh, question? Yes, uh, I think you are right. Uh, probably I won't, I won't travel there because I have listening all the stories that Cuban people told me here in, in Florida. Um, mm. But um, that's why probably I won't even think on travel to Cuba. Even when I was in Argentina, you know, Argentina and Cuba are uh, friends and Everything you listen at the university oh, wow. is wow, what Cuba, Cuba is a great country, huh. a Soviet U.S., <laughs> uh, all these things that you realize when, when you go out. But uh, as you say before, um, the thing is this restriction is from U.S. to Cuba. People from Europe, people from all over can travel to Cuba. And they are also promoting this propaganda or this advertising for, yeah. for them. So I think exiles in, in Miami should take a stand promoting more what is happening there through movies or through their saying they their voices. That's a that is a great point actually because I too was one of the people who was 
misinformed or uninformed about what was going on in Cuba. And I just saw it as kind of like a benign place. But yeah, when I came down a couple of months ago for that conference, I just thought people need to realize this is a vicious uh, regime. And they are so afraid of the truth that the access to the Internet is only about 2%. 98% of people do not have Internet access. And that's the kind of stranglehold they have on information because regimes, they don't want the truth to be out there. Basically, that, that's one of, the, one of the attendees at their conference was saying that the first victim of totalitarianism or collectivism is the truth because if people realize the truth, they would not want that, that situation of, of affairs. And then I'm, I'm amazed, too, that people in Argentina would be buddies with a place like Cuba, but I guess I need to learn more about Latin American politics. Elena, do you want to comment on that? Well, yes, I think uh, Chavez has gotten Cuba's uh, influence, uh, has reached everywhere in Latin America now through, Ch- through the figure of Chavez. Um, but I think one pos- on the positive side, uh, there, Cuba's economic lifeline has mostly been uh, kept alive by uh, Venezuela and Chavez's subsidies. So what happens uh, with Maduro in, in Venezuela in the future? But when, when you say, well, we, we're going to discuss this more for the break, and I want to uh, sort of give uh, get more chance to, for Marianella to speak before we have to let her go. But Marianella, do you want to touch upon the responses that this article has received? I'm not sure what traffic it's got, but have you received any feedback, email or otherwise? Uh, actually, not so much. Because for me, writing this article, I was thinking in the Americans. Um, in Spanish, we have a lot of things in, in Miami, right, um, about Cuba, and it's every right. single day in the news. But when you talk with Americans, um, they don't realize what is really happening then, there and how these things work there and how their U.S. dollars are used by, by the Cuban government. Um, so I, I write that, um, especially thinking in them and trying to explain uh, what is happening there. But no, actually, I didn't get so much responses. That's that's interesting because, yeah, it, it, this article merits it. One point I wanted to make, too, about people who are opposed travel to Cuba, there's a certain irony to what they say because when I, w- when I was at this conference, we can, all, we can all agree that there is a tyranny in Cuba, a draconian regime, but members of the, of the conference, the people who actively, you know, promote barriers to, to entry into Cuba, they go there all the time. So I'm going, uh, wait a second. You know, so you should have to go, but not other people. I was confused by that. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And I think what Marianela was saying is true. Like, it, uh, if the sanctions are only on you and Americans, so it doesn't really work if you're. Right. If well, other people are also going. Marianela, I'm, I'm really pleased you did write this article. And I appreciate the time you've given to the stateless man. So best of luck with your work All right, Florida Watchdog. Thank you so much for inviting me to your program. It's, it's our pleasure. Now we have to go to the bottom, a break on the bottom of the hour, uh, take care of some business, but uh, we'll be back after the break uh, with Elena and we'll be discussing both this issue and my recent article on books that have changed my life. So this is the stateless man on the Overseas Radio Network. Free! 
This is The Sailor's Man, and I should mention, actually, we're in the second hour, and we are sponsored by AMTG Solutions. Uh, that's uh, founded by Tony Escobar, a friend of mine. He does an excellent digital media and web development. If you're looking to start a website, uh, you should check it out, uh, amtgs.com. And that includes actually the statelessman.com if you want to check it out. I'm really pleased with the work he's done there. And last week we had a full slate of guests, and we didn't get a chance to talk about – well, actually, before we get to this, though, do you have any final thoughts on the Cuba issue, Elena? No, I thought that she made an interesting point uh, to comparing uh, uh, other um, countries' sanctions yeah. to Cuba um, and whether they should be equal or not. Um, well, that's just the matter. That's just the reality of the world that this is not going to be equal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and whether they would be effective or not, I think, is also a, a good question. And yeah, but yeah, but yeah, in terms of what she also mentioned that uh, other people aren't following the same sanctions, then it becomes less effective, obviously. Yes, it, it's almost like a breakdown of the rule of law at the international level that if you're not going to enforce your, you could say, imposition of sanctions on an equal basis, it seems like you're playing favorites. Right. Exactly. I mean, because I just look, I mean, are there sanctions against China? <laughs> well, I just think uh, Last time I checked, no. Yeah, I think his, historically the relationship with Cuba is the reason why it's still in place. But... um. But yeah, also, I think if they're going to be in place and stronger than in other nations, then um, they need to be making them more effective. Um, yeah, they're not really achieving a heck of a lot right now. Exactly. So um, no. trying to restructure it, especially now that Cuba's economic position is so vulnerable with Chavez. The That's the point I, want to, I wanted you to expand upon, actually, because you were kind of getting to that when we had Marinella on, that you want to, let's say, starve or choke funds that go to Cuba. Let's just let's say that actually everyone just says, hey, you know what, we're not going to go to Cuba, <laughs> we're not going to buy their products, and we're not going to travel there. What would what would happen then? I think uh, the thing is the level of inefficiency of a of a um, communist economy is so high um, that it would eventually crumble under its own weight. I mean, it- so now, now, actually, there are, I think it's eleven million people in Cuba, right? I think so. Yeah, and I think there are eighteen thousand people in the private sector. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So. Oh, it's going. That's some pretty healthy economic activity going on. So I think even the shoeshine boy, I think even the shoeshine boy, his shoeshine equipment is owned by the state. Yeah. yeah so that's intense. It's so intense. If you suffocate the state system, then. But then what happens? I mean, obviously, I, don't, I mean, they did with the sanctions uh, with the Soviet Union. They were successful, and you think so? Yeah, I think they were, they contributed in large part to their uh, to their economic downfall. I mean, and I mean, it was they were much worse than they than people in the West thought that they were. And I think it's the same with Cuba. Their numbers are always their economic numbers. Are they, I think, the average wage in Cuba is nineteen dollars a month. Yeah. You can't even get a meal for 19 bucks here exactly. in Florida, basically. So, and there's one, not a whole month's worth. So, the people who want to celebrate the sort of socialist policies of Cuba, I just am kind of appalled, actually. It's so, it's so, no one's trying to swim to Cuba from Florida, <laughs> let's put it that way, but the people trying to swim the other direction. And I, I'm just, I'm just still astounded that people uh, want to push that kind of argument. I find it incredible. And I meet people like that all the time, actually, even 
just still. Yeah. And with Venezuela as well. And Venezuela yeah. has no sanctions. And, you know, it's not the regime. They just, they just don't want American companies to come. Either. It's, it's all so, their, on their yeah. side. And even without sanctions, you wouldn't, there would be no foreign investment in those type of countries anyway. So. Right. Man. Well, th- I mean, I would just say that I'm somewhat curious to go to Cuba, but let's say you were to go. I don't know. Is there a way to maybe not not have your money go to the regime, but just I don't know, interact with local people? I mean, I'm sure you could interact with local people, but I'm sure part of your your Guaranteed. money would 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 and would reach the regime at some point. I know. And it's also, I mean, what would your presence in Cuba do for Cubans? You're not I don't really know. Helping anyone either? You're just going there. Go for and interest. do an episode of the Stateless exactly. Man from Cuba. I'd have so limited internet activity. Go, then I could sure. take photos. <laughs> they probably can't. They probably confiscate my equipment. As soon as I got there, I mean, I think it's different if you if you have family there or something. But, but I see I see tourists go there with cameras and everything all the time. Yeah. So um, do they just not let you out of the sort of pigeonholed area for the foreigners? Um, I mean, I I know some people who have who have gone outside of that. But right. Yeah. To me, it would be just going to visit a living museum, which I ha- I'm not that's making what, any impact. So I would personally wouldn't choose to go. Really? Yeah, that's what I would see that too, is that it, it is some, some, basically a museum from a bygone era. Right, and but there's still people living in that. I condition. know they are forced to live in that, so, those conditions. Cause if you're making 20 bucks a, a month, uh, you're not just going to get a ticket to anywhere else pretty, very anytime soon. You basically need exiles to send you money to get you out of there. And that's why when I was in Ecuador, there were all these Cubans there, and I'm going, uh, why are people migrating to Ecuador? Like, wages aren't exactly high here. But compared to 19 bucks a, a month, I mean, it's pretty good, actually. But that's also the thing. I don't think uh, exiles sending money to them would change their situation that much. I mean, there's a lot of Venezuelan exiles sending money back to their relatives. No, what I mean is it helping you to get out. Well, maybe. It would yeah. help, yes. <laughs> yeah, not, not assuming that you're going to overthrow the government or anything like that. No, 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 I know. Yeah. Right. Well, let's let's move on because, like I said, I, last week I didn't get time to discuss my article, which was a bit of a I don't know. I, I can describe it as a bit of a heartfelt one, a bit of like a person, personal one. Books that have changed my life, and if you haven't checked it out, it is on the Stateless Man. Still, it's on the front page. If you just scroll down, uh, you see a, a a montage of book covers there with Fred, How I Found Freedom in Unfree World. Yo. A Ralph Nader's book, Crash in the Party. And this one, yeah, Books That Have Changed My Life is the title, and The Journey of a Restless Mind. And I explain how if I map back all the books that I've read, it's, it's, it really does, I don't know, give an insight into what has shaped my thinking to this day. And recently I was moving between apartments up in North Carolina, although we're broadcasting from Florida now. And I got a chance to look over many of these old books and I wanted to share these with the listeners because I think just many people are curious as to what books really have a profound impact on you. You've, you've got a, a, an enormous <clears throat> array of books to choose from and you've got limited time. So which books are actually going to be the most revealing or enlightening? And I shared just 10, but the fact is actually that these just touch the surface of many that have impacted me and I actually found a list from college that I had must have lost years ago, but I, it came back up, and I saw many books that I'd forgotten to mention. Yeah, so I wanted to bring up because not only had these books changed my thinking, they've had an enormous impact on my life too, and that is, I guess, a credit to the authors, but also I'm, I'm just very pleased. I think I feel very lucky to have access to basically whatever thinker that I want of this era. 
And I also like how you uh, did a sort of chronological <laughs> chronological order order of how how they start the the impact on on the different stages and and yeah. your intellectual journey through. I know, yeah. And I, I I first note that back when I was a child, I this is back in well, when I went to Glen Massey Primary School in New Zealand, and there are about 160 people in the village, and the sign says 160 people still growing, but that's been around for about 20 years, so I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know how quickly it's growing. I suspect about one person a year, maybe. (laughs) It hasn't changed much since that time. And yeah, it's actually quite a pretty part of the country. But there were about, I think about 100 students at the school. So some people used to come from outside of the village to go to the school, which included me. I guess we were outside of the village. And yeah, I went to a cross-country race out in Waikaratu or Nike, which is this just remote part of the country where just farmers are. And gradually, unfortunately, there aren't so many people out there because farming is not doing so well. But I won a, I won a cross-country race against all the other, you know, people from other schools, and I thought I was the, the king, and mm-hmm. I wanted to become an athlete. I liked that, and I was inspired to prepare for a triathlon and basically take a methodical approach to sports. My mother bought me a book, The Essential Runner, which I still have here with me in Florida right now, actually, it's been around almost 20 years ago, which is crazy to think about. But we, yeah, we're coming up to the break. Uh, if you want to check out the article, it is on thestatelessman.com. The books that have changed my life. If you want to question me about any of these, you can call in 1-888-741-7472. I'll also be glad to take perspectives on the Cuba situation and whether you've traveled there, whether you recommend others do so. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, so this is The Stateless Man on Never Sees Radio Network. Welcome back to The Stateless Man. We're pursuing liberty beyond borders. And I'm co-hosting today with Elena Ball. And it's a beautiful day here in Boca Raton. We're just looking out at a fountain in front of us <laughs> and the sun's shining. And we're, yeah, we're examining a book, well, an article I wrote for the, the last week's feature on The Stateless Man. This week's is regarding the sovereignty movement in Catalonia in Spain. And this one is a very pro-sovereignty or secession article from a man who is familiar with such movements from uh, Quebec, Yalosovsky. His uh, website is libertyinexile.com, and I'm really proud to run his article. It's got some great material in there. I also got a response, though, from a Colombian friend who lives <laughs> lives in Spain, and she had a counter countering perspective she said that she said i do not agree their culture as many others within spain has never been threatened and their language values and culture continue to grow unharmed from my point of view they're economically strong and capable to subsist on their own and they just hate the fact they contribute to the whole economy without getting back at the same rate huh it would be good if they could go their own way and learn how to sort of do without spain to some degree so i guess she's saying that they would have challenges uh, they would they would have to if they were to go alone they would see the benefits of being a part of Spain and she said they're not the most friendly people who come to Spain <laughs> so so I can't I can't wait there and I'm really pleased that she gave her perspective right but back to the article uh, books that have changed changed my life there are just many in here is we only and we only have about ten minutes to play with 
Are there any, Elena, that you that caught your attention out of this list? You think we should examine further? Well, I was interested that you put in the uh, the crashing the party. Ralph Nader's. Yeah. 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 Well, but see, the, the deal is actually, I, I will speak about Ralph Nader because I included that one book by him, Crashing the Party, but that was just one of many I read. When I first arrived in the United States, uh, I came for a visit in 2002, and I've mentioned this before. Maybe you, maybe I've told you this, but when I arrived, I think it was October 2002, that was my first visit to the United States, and I went to the head of the Charles Rowing Regatta in Boston, and I was staying at a youth hostel, and there, there were a couple of other people just staying there, and I said, well, I want to learn about the United States. And a girl said, well, there is – well, I knew that George Bush was the president. That was about the, the extent of my knowledge of the United <laughs> States. And someone said, well, there's a Republican and Democratic party. There are Republican and Democratic parties, and George Bush is a Republican. But I, at that time, I used to forget which party George Bush was a part of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so – that was how just such limited knowledge I have of the U.S. And I remember I used to get mixed up. I thought Michigan was a city. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but so it's amazing to think, actually, how much I've got to learn and experience here, which has really just been a wonderful period of my life. And I, I would say I've been in and out many times since then. But I was so eager to just devour information about the United States and just learn its history, what was going on. And when I was in New Zealand, even though I didn't know a lot about what was going on, I had heard of a guy called Ralph Nader because he was a candidate on the Green Party ticket. My parents are or have been organic farmers in New Zealand, and so we're very sympathetic to environmentalism or sustainability. And as I mentioned all the time, I grew up on you know organic uh, produce. Now, so I, I began reading Ralph Nader. Firstly, I just read a biography about him, which was uh, Crusader, spoiler, where I've got it down here. I do not have it listed here. I should I should put that one up. But I yeah, I, I looked at a biography on him and then I read his collected writings and then I read which is just a, a bunch of all his columns from about 3 or 4 years straight. Just incredible uh, depth of information there and then his uh, his book Crashing the Party was particularly important because it revealed to me the duopoly or stranglehold on power that two political parties have. And I became much more aware of people trying to work outside of that. And you could say third parties. And I remember one of my most sort of enjoyable, I used to love watching the, the debates. One of the most enjoyable ones was this third party debate. This would have been 2004. And they had the, the Constitution Party, the Socialist Party, the Green Party, and the Libertarian Party. So Ralph Nader was not in that debate, even though he was running as a candidate. Mm-hmm. And I was just floored that people were talking about things like the Patriot Act, that they were talking about things like legalizing hemp, about... I'm trying to think now of other violations of civil liberties, about uh, the Federal Reserve, about doing away with things like the minimum wage. I was just, I was just so excited to see a different perspective, and I've never really been the same since both reading that book and hearing those debates, realizing that the debate that you see a quote debate in most media outlets is really just a silly debate. And it, it doesn't really address the underlying, you could say, foundations of policy in the United States, be it Social Security or Medicare or whatever it may be. And the you could say the actual constitutional basis for policy in the U.S. Because many people forget that the U.S. is a constitutional republic, constitutional representative republic in a federal system. And that means that some things are just not simply not in the legal um, powers of the federal government. But regardless, that changed my view of the U.S. And more recently, Ralph Nader 
has written a and so the book that I, I noted in my article is Crashing the Party. Because basically there was this he, he describes it as a party, like these two groups of people like drunk on power and partying it up at our expense. Mm-hmm. And he was crashing the party like he was the outsider coming in and saying, This is a ridiculous, I'm gonna I'm gonna like you know, stop this party at everyone else's expense. And he tried to get into the actual debates, which would have been a great format for him, but he never got into because basically the two the people in the Democratic and Republican parties did not want to let in an outsider who would have shown them for what they were. And that's one reason why I would have loved to have seen Ron Paul in the debate, actually, because he would have had that same impact up against a Democratic candidate. But regardless, since then, Ralph Nader has written another book, uh, which is basically a distillation of all his work, which you could say uh, brings it all together, and that is The Good Fight. And... I've also linked to that in the article as well, justthestatelessman.com. If you if you uh, scroll down, you'll see the article, Books That Have Changed My Life. And I also embed the video of one of the debates from 2012, the third-party debate, which if you haven't watched it, just do it. It's just great fun. Seriously, it's so entertaining. They've got Larry King as the moderator, and he forgets to ask the right introductory <laughs> statements. It's just all over the place. And when we say colorful, it literally is colorful. The, the main debates, they just wear exactly the same suit with their U.S. pin badge and their red tie. But in this one, a guy wears a brown suit. A lady wears a colorful outfit. I'm going, this is just, people actually are not afraid to actually express themselves. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, check it out. Just the statelessman.com. And if you scroll down, you'll get that one. So any others that, that how found freedom and unfree world? You've got that one up on the page there. Yeah. Basically, this one forms, you might say, the thinking, not necessarily philosoph- philosophical thinking, but just, underlying actionable thinking for the basis of the stateless man. The book is how I found freedom in an unfree world by Harry Brown, uh, written in 1993, but updated again in 1998. He passed away, I think in 2006, but basically there are, there's just a, a wealth of information in terms of targeting your thinking to basically just living the life you want and getting unnecessary impediments, particularly mental impediments out of your way. And so, even though he was, you could say, a libertarian proponent, this book is not about that. It's about how you can change your life with your actions, regardless of what is going on politically, and the realization that you can be a lot freer than you might realize just by taking some some initiative and rather than being so fatalist and thinking that everything's lost cause. And I think it's just a wonderful inspiration. And I came into contact with him through the Foundation for Economic Education, and as, uh, he gave a presentation, audio. Pre- I, I heard the audio of it, about the greatest mistake in American history, I think, letting government educate our children or something like that. And I was just astounded. I, I was so unfamiliar with the idea that you didn't need government officials to educate you. And this guy was just made so much sense. I was, I was kind of addicted and I wanted to, I started to listen to his radio show and he had a TV show for a while as well. And I was really impressed by him. So that's why I included that one. And initially I didn't actually read the book. I just listened to his show and I heard a presentation about his book. There was kind of like a distil- distillation of his book as well that was that is available. But the book is worth your time. He goes into much more controversial issues, which I'm, I don't necessarily agree with, actually, all of his take on that. But it is challenging intellectually. And one thing you've got to keep in mind is if, if you are going to be, how can I put this, overcoming mental traps, talking about it for other people is easy. Oh, you have this mental trap. But overcoming your own mental traps that is much harder and that's the real that's the real challenge be it 
I don't know, what he calls, you could say, the group trap that you've got to make decisions in a group as opposed to just acting upon your, on yourself. And he applies this to many areas of life, which you could say are uh, unconventional, such as family life and how you handle custody of children and just uh, family arrangements, which is really challenging. The, I'm trying to think whether there are other, we've got a, yeah, a couple of minutes to play with and there are, with their other books here that are particularly important. I will say that what's important really is that I couldn't include many other books. Maybe I'll have to, I'm not sure whether I'll do it like a second, second tier list of 10 in the future, but <laughs> many, I, well, actually, no, I won't speak about any more books because we're, we're so, so short on time, but I'll say that not one of these books was ever a part of a curriculum or assigned reading for any university course or any high school or elementary school, whatever course. It was all of my out of my own curiosity. And like we we're discussing about being a lifelong learner, if you want to learn something, just go to make it happen. Whether you're going to get a documentary, listen to a presentation, or read a book on it. And I've I've given you a place to start, you know, my ten books that have influenced me. And maybe I'll put together a list of documentaries in the future. But just follow your own curiosity. That's where you're going to learn the most and have the most impact. And I hope you do. People do read these books and get back to me with their feedback. Elena, any other thoughts on that article before we wrap up the program? No, it was it was great to see your intellectual journey. And yeah, hopefully we, you can put some others. Some more up there. Yeah. yeah. Well, otherwise, it's been a pleasure again this week. You know, I'm thankful for Elena Ball for co-hosting with me. Otherwise, come back next week, Monday, 12 to 2, on the Overseas Radio Network. From China's Great Wall to the Leaning Tower of Pisa, this is the Overseas Radio Network. <laughs>